So if you would, open to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Our focus this morning will be verses 12 to 17. Now we'll begin by reading the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. The words of the Lord to his 11 disciples in the upper room the night before the cross. Verse 12, John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. This I command you, that you love one another. Please join me in prayer. Father, we ask now that you prepare our hearts, your church, your bride, your people to receive this truth. God, I pray that we'll understand what the church means to you and that she would mean the same to us this morning. I pray for anyone here, Lord, who's walked in, invited, having felt compelled to walk through the doors this morning and they don't know you, I pray that you would grant them saving faith today. According to your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. The church is the one another that we're to love. The one another that we're to love is the church. The friends of Christ are the true church. What comes to mind when you think about the church right now? When you think about the church, what comes to your mind? There's a statement I ran across this week. It says this. No group, no movement, no institution of any kind in the world can even approach to the glory, the splendor, the honor, the beauty, the magnificence, the wonder, the dignity, the excellence, the resplendency of the church of God. Is that a true statement? Is that an accurate testimonial? Are these words of this anonymous author, authentically grounded in reality? I mean, do these words of near reverence rightly identify the church? Is this an overstatement? Is this just a bit over the top? Or are we to have this kind of regard for the church. Now, most certainly, 
if any doctrine or the church itself becomes the, the ultimate object of one's devotion or worship, we can expect spiritual decomposition from within, no doubt. However, this is a big however, we must also be certain to understand that the purpose, the passion, the preoccupation of Jesus Christ is permanently affixed to his church. And to live our lives as though this is not so is nothing less than a denial of the lordship of Jesus Christ. How do you feel about his church? For the true believer in Christ, the overarching fact that causes the church to be regarded as a thing of glory, splendor, beauty, and magnificence is that she belongs to Jesus. His church. That is the source of her dignity. For instance, if I asked you how much you would give me for my golf putter, it's in great shape because, <laughs> as Dave Warner knows, I'm a terrible golfer and I don't get out much. But it's a nice club. It was given to me as a gift. If I offered it to you up for sale, if you golf, you would perhaps offer me 30 bucks, get a good deal. 30 bucks. However, if I had a club that was for sale and it belonged to Tiger Woods when he won his first master's title, you would give me much, much more for that putter. Or if I offered you, if I put up for sale my old tattered and torn Bible, the first Bible I ever owned as a believer, it's shredded, it's torn, it's worn, the, the ink and my notes have bled through the pages. You wouldn't want that, I highly doubt. However, if I owned a tattered, torn Bible that had belonged to the likes of Martin Luther, John Bunyan, or Charles Spurgeon, you may offer me much, much more money for that tattered and torn Bible. Because the value of an object increases in direct proportion to the significance of the person to whom it belongs. Therefore, a Christian who's less than enthusiastic with regard to the church of Jesus Christ has no idea who the church is, let alone who, to whom she belongs. This is my commandment, Jesus said, that you love one another. In other words, that you love the church. Just as I have loved you. You who? The church. This night, these 11 disciples, the 11 disciples, we've received by God's grace over time the divine truth of God, which makes you a child of God, which makes you the church. Verse 14, he said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. The commandment to love one another. You're my friends if you do what I command you, and that is to love one another. Now, what the context shows us here is this, this is not telling us how to become friends of Jesus. You don't become his friend by, by loving one another. But rather, as true followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus insists that there is an element of relational love that must be nurtured, must be preserved. Notice, 
that the love of Jesus for his own reflects the very nature of his relationship to the Father. Back in verse 9, little review. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. And the Son's love for the Father was demonstrated by what? Perfect obedience, as we studied last time. In verse 10, Jesus continues, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, abide and abide in his love. So we are to abide in, we are to remain in, we are to continue in, that's what abide means, the love of Christ. And this is his love of approbation, meaning his love of approval which we looked at last time. This is not the unconditional love of God that, 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 that is graced to the believer in salvation, but this is the approving love of God that comes by way of obedience. Just as my children remain or, or abide in my love by obeying me and not defying me, so too the true follower of Jesus Christ remains or abides in his love, his love of approval, as they obey. They're able to experience his approving love. That's what it is to a love, uh, abide in the love of Jesus. Now, there is, of course, a sense in which I love my children regardless of what they do. There is a sense in which God loves you as a true believer regardless of what you do or don't do. But the command to abide in his love is the relational element of that love. And it's contingent upon our obedience. And by way of obedience, we're able to experience his approval. And this is a love that is mediated to us, according to verse 9, from the Father to the Son to us. And as a result of our obedience to him, what do we experience in verse 11? Joy. Great joy. A full joy. Jude's epistle puts it like this. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now we know that he keeps us in his saving love, but we're commanded to keep ourselves in his approving love as we obey. So from the commandment to abide in my love, Jesus continues with the next directive, love one another. And it's only as we abide in Christ, it's only as we abide in his word, and as we abide in his love, that we are able to keep on loving one another. Loving his church. How do you feel about the church? After the foot washing this very night, chapter 13, along with the subsequent casting out of Judas... Jesus washed all 12 of the disciples' feet, and he said, not all of you are clean. He ordered Judas out. And once Judas was gone, he said this in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for my church. One another. Here in verse 12 of chapter 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved my church, my bride, my sheep. 
in the middle of this very passage that's in front of us this morning is verse 14. You are my friends if, if you do what I command you. So these 11, as well as you, as well as me, we've been made his friends by grace through faith. We don't make ourselves friends of God. He makes us friends of the Son. And a friend always seeks the good of one, the one he loves. And our good is his holiness in, his, in and through us. Ultimately for what? His glory. For his glory. Notice who his friends are. You are my friends if, if you do what I command you. So obedience is not what makes them friends here. Obedience is what characterizes his friends. Branches that are in a vine, right here in the beginning of the chapter, branches that abide in the vine are made evident by way of obedience. In other words, they bear fruit. They prove that they have life. Being born again of the Spirit, and there's no one that's saved that's not born again, is not earned by way of obedience, but rather is evidenced by obedience. The fact that someone's truly saved, in other words, born again, it's proven because they live an obedient life. Because they can. They've been enabled. They've been graced to abide in Christ. In the Gospel of Mark... In verse 31, Jesus is, is teaching a group of folks, as he always did. And he's in, he's in the home here. So the home is filled. The, the entryway is filled. No one could get in. And from the outside, there's his mother Mary, along with the brothers of Jesus, half-brothers. And then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called to him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, this is my true family. This is my true family. In John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus speaks of his family as sheep. He's the great shepherd. The churches are the sheep. My sheep do what? They hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Sheep are known by the shepherd. Goats are not. Goats are not known by the shepherd. Goats don't follow. Goats don't obey because they're not of the shepherd. John 8, 31, Jesus said, If, if you abide in my word, then you truly, you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So the command for those who've been made friends of Jesus is to love one another, and we'll look at that last this morning. But first we'll look at what characterizes the friends of Jesus. And that which sets apart those who've been made friends of Jesus is fourfold. It's outlined for you in your bulletin. Number one, they've been granted by divine grace, divine revelation, number one. Secondly, they are chosen out of the world, 
The third characteristic of those that are friends of Christ bear eternal fruit. And fourthly, they experience answered prayer. So let's look together at what we've been given in Christ before we look at his command. If you know who you are, you know what you're called to do. Now again, no one becomes the friend of Jesus. No one is born again of the Spirit through obedience. In other words, no one is saved by way of attempting to obey God. You can't, that, then you could earn your salvation. But rather, being the friend of Jesus or being born again, those who are truly saved, is demonstrated by way of an obedient life due to the fact that they are saved. So why or how are they his? Number one, and you're outlined, first, for the reason that they've been granted divine revelation. If you're in Christ, you have been gifted with divine revelatory truth of the sovereign God of the universe. The lost world has not been given this gracious gift. Verse 15, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. The divine revelatory truth of God gifted to those he now calls friends. What a gift. Now, it's important to note that this friendship is not mutual. In other words, these friends of Jesus cannot now turn to Jesus and say that Jesus will be their friend so long as they, he does what they say. There's many people like that today. Well, you know, I've been waiting on God to do this, this, and this, and I, you know, as long as he does it, I'm cool with Jesus and he's cool with me. No, you're a fool and you're folly, if that's your thinking. Although the disciples are Christ's friends does not mean that they now stand on equal ground. You know, people so ignorantly speak today, they try to win the loss to Jesus with words like this, isn't Jesus cool? He's so cool. He's so rad. Just make him your friend, man. Just make Jesus your friend. Interesting side note here. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever mention that Jesus, God the Father, are described as being our friend. Abraham was referred to as the friend of God. We read that in the Old Testament. We read that in the New Testament. God spoke of Moses as his friend by implication, for in Exodus 33.11 it says, God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to he, his friend. But never is God spoken of as being our friend. On earth, friends most often choose one another, amen? Now, there, there's a, 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 this is a two-way street. But the origin of friendship here is one-sided. It's not an approach from one side, two sides. It's not that the 11 said, yeah, I'm going to choose to be Jesus' friend and I'll, uh, I'll allow him to be my friend and so long as he makes me his friend, we, we'll meet at the halfway point. This was not some two-sided gradual approach. These friends were established by Christ alone. This was his work. And Jesus' friends now become the object of his love. If you're in Christ, you are the object of his affection, the one he loves. And you are much more now than just a simple slave. 
And because you're not a simple slave, he shares with you, as he did these 11, the inner motives of his ministry and the impending sacrifice, which was ahead, which was the cross. You see this through this discourse in the upper room. It's not for a slave to know why his master says, do this or do that. The slave just what? Obeys. You just do it. He doesn't need to let you in on why he's doing it. But to a friend, however, the master shares his hope. The master shares his plan. Because he's a friend. And then friends obey out of love. They know that their master loves them. And the friend loves in return by way of obedience. And he says we're his friends because he has made known to us that which he's received from his father. Big connection there. All that he's received from the father he's made known to these 11. All that he's received from the father has been made known to you. This is an intimate now friendship. D.A. Carson in his book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, illustrates this for us. He says this. He said, imagine an army colonel. An army colonel tells a GI, an enlisted man, go fetch the Hummer. If the GI says he will do so, only if the colonel tells him exactly why and gives him permission to use it as a runabout while the colonel spends his time at headquarters, that GI is asking for about six months of kitchen patrol duty. But suppose the colonel has been a friend of the GI's family for years and has watched the young man grow up. He may say to the GI, Jim, fetch the Hummer, please. I need you to drive me to headquarters. I'll be out there about two hours. You can use the vehicle in that gap, provided you're back to pick me up at 1,600 hours. In this case, of course, the GI is required no less to obey the colonel. The difference, the difference of friendship is that full information has been conveyed. It is an informational difference, a difference of revelation, not a difference of obedience. And we, Carson continues, have been incalculably privileged not only to be saved by God's love, but to be shown it to be informed about it, to be let in on the mind of God. God is love, and we are the friends of God, end quote. That's his church. You've been let in on the mystery. You've been let in on his purpose. You've been privileged to understand by divine revelation. You know, Jesus prayed, or he will pray in our study. We'll get to this in John 17. This night he prayed for these disciples, and he said this, Father, I have manifested your name, John 17, 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So this suggests for us that the disciples already belong to the Father, in eternity past, and they were therefore given to the Son, a love gift to the Son, his church, his people, his friends. His name, his purpose, his divine, divine decree is not made known to everyone, friends. You have been given the revelatory truth of Jesus Christ by way of grace. In Matthew 13, Verse 10, it says, The disciples came to Jesus and they said, Why do you speak to them, the masses, in parables? 
And he answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. You know what that means by what it says? To them it has not been granted. (laughs) To the church, to these 11, to the disciples, the mysteries have been made known to them. In other words, it means what it says. Not everyone has the ability to penetrate the meaning of God's word. You sit there with the word of God in your lap and you understand the eternal truths of God because he's graced you by divine revelation to understand. You bring an unbeliever and they can go buy a brand new Bible, a big Bible, a thick Bible, a nice Bible, a calfskin Bible. And they have no capacity to understand the divine revelatory truth of God unless God graces them to do so. This understanding does not come by way of human cleverness, but the ability are given solely to the disciples of Christ, his friends. And we, his friends, are recipients of God's divine truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes, Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. You're taught by the Spirit of God. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. You know, it's a shame, actually, that the church doesn't rejoice more so in this eternal privilege. It's taken for granted by many of us, I believe. He's made himself known to us. He's enabled us to believe and receive him, you see. Paul continues in the next verse, but, verse 14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand him, because they're spiritually appraised. There may be people sitting here this morning who think this is foolishness. It's because they cannot understand. They will not because they cannot. They cannot understand. His friends have been granted and understand divine revelation. Because, point number two, they've been chosen out of the world. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you, Jesus said to these 11 men that night. This has to do with their salvation. And any inkling on their part that might cause these men to be puffed up as though they had something to do with it, Jesus anticipates. And he says, you did not choose me. Now, it was common in the first century for learners, disciples of any rabbi, to befriend a rabbi. The rabbi didn't befriend or didn't draw to himself these disciples. The disciples would choose whom they want to follow, and they would follow, and they would go, and they would sit, and they would listen, and they would learn. But not here. The grand privilege of God's salvific, in other words, saving love, is a privilege for which no man can boast at all. He chose who would make up his church. He selected his body. And only those who've been given to him out of the world are going to believe. Our true friends. If you remember this very night, earlier this night, these disciples argued. Remember what they argued about? Who would be the greatest? Who would be the greatest in the kingdom? 
when the Lord sets up his kingdom, who is going to be the greatest? Who is going to sit on his right? Who is going to sit on his left? And their presumption has been gradually and systematically dismantled by the Lord this very night in the upper room. He's destroying all their preconceived notions. These men were graced with the call to discipleship. They were graced with the, the call to apostleship. They were graced with the call to salvation. You've been graced with the call to salvation. All believers are granted saving faith, not because they're better or wiser, as though they, they have been made, they've made the right choice, but only because God chose them. Now, does this negate their responsibility to obediently follow Christ here? Not at all. However, they would have no desire or ability to follow Christ in the first place outside of the determining factor to do so. The determining factor? God himself. Had he not chosen them initially, had he not chosen them eternally, they'd have never chosen to leave their livelihoods to follow him for three and a half years and then go on to die for that glorious gospel message that you have in your laps this morning. In John 6.65, Jesus said again, for this reason... For this reason I have said to you, this is, the reason is so many left. So many followed him and then they departed from him and they wanted nothing to do with him. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless, unless it has been granted to him from the Father. You know what that means? This is what it means. No one can come to Jesus unless it's been granted to him by the Father. That's what that means. Because he chooses them out of the world, they bear fruit. Okay, They've been given divine revelation, just as you have. They've been appointed now to bear fruit that is eternal. Why? Because they're chosen out of the world. Point number three. The friends of Jesus bear fruit that forever, forever remains. Jesus continues, And I've appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should what? Remain. It will remain. So Jesus chose them to go, not to sit. He chose them to be attentive to his truth, not sleep. He chose them to go, not watch. He chose them to go and not to merely receive. However, they can only go because they are recipients of this glorious truth. That's how they go. That's why they go, because they've received those who've truly received, go. So these 11, as well as all true believers throughout time, they go and they do because of what they've received. This is evidence of true salvation. They were appointed, they were set apart for special service, these 11, to bear lasting fruit. The Lord's ambassadors, privileged to tell others about the king and his great salvation. These 11 were appointed as apostles. You're not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. These specific men called to apostleship to bear fruit that would reach us this day. And indeed it has. And we've taken the torch and we march forward for his glory with the same truth. And that fruit lasts forever. Everlasting fruit. 
Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. I planted, this is the truth of his word, I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the increase? God. God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters, they're one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. In Revelation 14, verse 12, we read that the angel says, John writes, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. It's eternal. The fruit that they bear down here by being in Christ, by way of obedience, context here loving one another, in John 15, that fruit lasts forever. They're appointed. So they receive divine revelation, the friends of Christ do. And they receive divine revelation because they've been chosen out of the world. And they've been chosen out of the world to bear fruit that remains forever. And then next... The fourth point, the friends of Jesus experience answered prayer. This is another thing that characterizes a true believer. Jesus continues, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Whatever you ask in my Father's name. So we're promised that whatever we desire and ask as we abide in Christ, the guarantee is that he'll answer. It will be done. Remember verse 7? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Guaranteed, it will be done. It will be done, believer. You know why? Because as we abide in Christ, as we abide in the love of Christ, we will be so in line with the desires of Christ, so in line with the word of God, that we'll ask according to his word. That we'll ask to be able to bear fruit in the first place. Understanding that we're totally, we're completely dependent upon him and he promises to answer that prayer. Prayer dependence. Jesus may as well be praying for us because our prayers are so in line with him. It's as though he prays for you by abiding in Christ. So this is who we are in Christ, friends. This is what we are in Christ. This is what characterizes the friends of Jesus Christ, i.e., the true church. Granted and graced with divine revelation, we've been chosen out of the world, we therefore bear fruit of eternal value, and we experience answered prayer. This is the characteristics of a believer. Now, because this is who we are by way of Christ alone, alone let's now observe this commandment. If this is who we are, this is what we do. And the the point of focus with regard here to obedience is love for the church. That's the context. Loving one another, loving God's people, the true church. What do you think about the church? How do you feel about the church? Verse 17, again, this I command you that you love one another. How seriously, friends, do you take this command? Do you take it personally? Do you realize that it is incumbent, incumbent upon you and upon me to love brothers and sisters in Christ as Christ has demanded? I mean, is, is Pacific Hope a place you attend just to hear a sermon? 
Is Pacific Hope a place that you hear just to go sing some songs and perhaps now and again drop off a check in the box? Or do you see Pacific Hope Church as a group of people to whom God has made you personally responsible? Notice the command. The command for those who've been made friends of Christ simply, back to verse 12, is to love one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Notice now, just as. Just as I have loved you. Uh, The love here is ongoing present tense. Never ending. Jesus continues with a conjunction. Notice, just as. Ongoing, never-ending love for one another, just as I have loved you. Just as has to do with the very nature of the love for which he has loved. Just as could also be translated in proportion with the love that I have with, for you. Or it could be translated to the degree that I have loved you. Meaning that the one single event that defines his love for these men, as well as for you and me, is his redeeming love on the cross. That's how he loved them. Notice what Jesus didn't say this night. He did not say this. Love me just as I have loved you. That's easy, amen? Love me, would say, Jesus would say, as I have loved you. But he didn't say that. This night he says, love one another just as I have loved you. That takes much, much, much more faith and dependence. He describes his love as the standard for loving one another. His love for his people, that's the standard. His love at the cross is what determines our love. And this love, friends, is a love of self-sacrifice. Now, we obviously can't love with a redeeming love. Amen? We'll agree with that. We cannot love with this kind of a redeeming love. We cannot love with an undefiled agape love as Christ loved because we still have a nature that we battle against. This is impossible. So he is not calling us here to love with a saving kind of love, but rather a sacrificial kind of love. That's the kind of love that he's referring to here. A total self-giving kind of love. A burden-bearing kind of love. A soul-strengthening kind of love. Not a superficial said love. Oh yeah, I love the church. This is love in action. Towards whom? The church. One another. One another. His glorious Blended church. So we're called to love one another in Christ-like love. A sacrificial love for the church. Made up of redeemed people. Sinners saved by grace. That's who we are to love like this. How do you love the church? You know, it's not primary a love that we exhibit towards the lost. A lot of folks get so caught up with, we got to go love the world. we got to show the love of Jesus to the world. we got to go do all this stuff and show the love of Jesus to the world. Yes, we're called to love the lost. Yes, we're called to love even our own enemies. But specifically, more than anything else, we're called to love one another because that's the testimony that will speak loudly to the lost world. In John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are but disciples if you what? Have love for one another, the church his bride, his friends. 
Now, what this doesn't mean is that you are to emotionally become everyone's closest confidant, everyone's best friend, that you have to spend equal amounts of time in in personal close friendships. Those kind of close personal friendships are orchestrated by the providential and sovereign hand of God. You have close personal intimate relationships, right? God provides that for us. But the command here is that we have a self-sacrificing love for all within the body of Christ. Not to become everyone's best friend, that's impossible. He doesn't expect that of us here. I mean, even Jesus had various levels of friendships within his 12 disciples. He spent much more time with Peter, James, and John than he did the entire 12. And on top of those three, who did he pour into more deeply than Peter himself? So here's God incarnate. He did not spend equal amounts of time with all 12 disciples. Well, perhaps if he would have spent more time with Judas, maybe he wouldn't have gone awry. (laughs) But that the scripture may be fulfilled. So, bottom line, loving Christ's church is a self-sacrificing love that does not mean that we're going to be everyone's closest, nearest, dearest friend. Proverbs 18.24 says this, a man of too many friends comes to, to ruin. Thank you. Literally means to be shattered to pieces. It will wear you out. You'll be empty. So to love as Christ commands and the intimacy that that people have high expectations for are are two different things altogether many times. I'm not going to be able to meet everyone's expectations that that come through the door when we move to Afton. Amen? We'll have many different visitors from many different places. I can't meet all their expectations as to what a pastor is to be or what, what a church is to be. But together we can. According to our giftedness. Together we can do this. I mean, we can meet people's expectations so long as those expectations are not unbiblical, so long as they're not unreasonable, let alone impossible. Many people come through the church's doorways with these impossible expectations, but they have greater problems and issues than just wanting to see love or experience love. We are, however, to act in the best interest of God's people, no doubt about it, and that comes at the cost of personal expense. That is the just as I have loved you command of Jesus. It's a sacrificial love. Do you love the church? See, the church is the very bride of Christ. You're his bride. We're his bride. And he's given us, he's given us his life to purchase us, to marry us. So what's the value of the church of Jesus? It's this. It's the price he paid for her. That's what the church means to Jesus, friends. This is what we must remember. And this is why we're to love the church. This is why we're to sacrifice the church. This is love. If Jesus paid the price of God's unmitigated wrath for the church, then we ought to love one another. Amen? This is an act of love. Church belongs to him. And this is why love for the church takes priority Over love for the world. Junior opened this morning with a reading from Galatians chapter 6. Verse 10 says this, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially 
to those who are of the household of faith. Especially can be translated to the greatest degree. Especially or to the greatest degree that we love the, those of the household of faith. Who's the household of faith? The friends of Christ. Who's the friends of Christ? The bride of Christ. Who's the bride of Christ? The church. Sinners saved by grace. And Jesus continues by defining the depth of this love in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. We're recipients of Calvary, brothers and sisters. Recipients of the cross work of Jesus Christ. This is the cross-bearing love of the Son who bore the Father's wrath over and against sin for you. And if he lays down his life for his friends, if he lays down his life for his friends, who are those that prove to be his friends? You are my friends if you do what I command you. And the command is to love his church, to love his people. So again, this obedience is not what makes them friends. This is what characterizes the friends of Christ. This characterizes the true church true believers. He laid down his life for the church. We're called to sacrifice ours in response to his grace. It all begins with grace. And we can only love like this according to his grace. A lot of Christians can't even give up their time. Time to serve, let alone give up their life. How many people will say, I would die for the name of Jesus Christ? They could put a gun to my head. They could have put a sword through my throat and I will die proclaiming the name of Jesus. Dude, you don't even show up on Sunday. (laughs) Many people think that singing songs in time of worship, that's just mine and Jesus' time. No, it's not. Friends, that is not your time alone. That's our time is the body of Christ joined together to worship Christ as one. We're not to go off into a corner and seclude ourselves from the body. That's the beauty of unity. That's why we gather on the Lord's Day together. Sinners saved by grace. That's the church. We're singing together as one to our Savior, as his friends. A lot of people won't give freely to missionaries ministries, let alone their local church, but they say they'll give their life. Now, I know that many, many, many of you in this church take this very seriously. This is kind of like speaking to the choir. This is a joy to witness. As a shepherd, as a pastor, this kind of love that is made evident in this church to one another is a joy to see. This is a very healthy church. This just happens to be where we are in the text, amen? Amen. So I'm not going to jump over it just because there's so many. Because certainly there's some here who don't. I mean, one of our sisters, as you all know, Holly Struxness, in the dear Struxness family, they have six kids and all sit up here in the first or second row just like this. From two years old on up, you don't hear a peep out of them. They need to be holding a class on how to raise kids to sit in church. It's amazing. Well, their dear children many of which came down with chickenpox, and uh, many complications stemmed from the chickenpox. So two of them were in the hospital, and I spoke with her yesterday, or it might have been, it was Friday or Saturday. And she told me this, that she knows that the love from, I'm paraphrasing what she said, she knows that the love from the church here is not simply an ideal. 
but she's experienced the reality of such love. For many of you, it came from here. Serving her, serving her family. They were quarantined. She said, look, if you drop off food, leave it to the front door and get out. Danger, danger, danger. We've seen the sacrifice of, of many faithful people, men and women, over at Afton Road, where we'll, our new home next week, Lord willing. For the last year, it's pretty much the same group, but nevertheless, we see a labor of love being made manifest, serving one another. That's love of the body. Praying for one another. Serving one another, ministering to one another, holding one another accountable, calling one another out, performing church discipline one-on-one. That's church discipline. That's love. That's a labor of love. 1 John 3.16 says this. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Who's the brethren, brethren? His friends, the church. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? In other words, how can it possibly abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. You see, although we're justified by faith alone, right? We declare the doctrines of grace here boldly. You're saved by grace through faith alone. No doubt. Justified by faith alone. True faith, however, is never unaccompanied. It's never alone, minus works, in other words. Calvin put it like this, quote, It is not our doctrine that the faith with which justifies is alone. We maintain that it is invariably accompanied by good works. If works of love are not present in our lives, then neither is saving faith, end quote. So anytime I come across a Christian who's less than enthusiastic about the church of Jesus Christ, I know without doubt that his disinterest towards the church is not truly because he had a bad experience in some church in the past. That's why I don't go to church, because I've been hurt. He may cry about that, but that's not the true reason. It's not really that the demands of my life are so busy that keep me from becoming involved with the church. That's not the reason, because I know the busiest men that I know who serve so faithfully. Nor is it really that at his last church he was let down by his less than perfect pastor. That's not really the reason that he doesn't have this kind of affection for the church. That isn't really the reason that he has so much disinterest for the church. You know, some will say, you know what, it's just too far to drive. And you know what, the guy preaches for an over an hour, and then you've got to get your kids into the children's ministry and then get them out, and then you end up talking to somebody for, you know, a half hour, 45 minutes, and that just kind of burns the whole day. Someone who left here actually said something like that. That's ridiculous. This is the Lord's day that the saints gather, the friends of Christ gather together. Resurrection Sunday. I hear this. Life is so busy. Oh, life is so busy that we've decided to do cyber church. We're going to watch church on the internet. That's how we do it. We just kick back on our jammies, you know, and have a cup of coffee and just listen to the words of Jesus, just the wife and I. It's ridiculous. 
And besides that, many will say, you know, it's just Jesus and me, man. It's my personal relationship with Jesus. Anyway, who says you have to go to church to be a Christian? Jesus. (laughs) See, that whole personal relationship with Jesus stuff is the product of really poor evangelism. Just ask Jesus into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior, and you'll have a personal, everlasting relationship. That's not what that means, personal. When you are born again of the Spirit, bought to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you are born again and birthed into his church, the body, for a purpose, to corporately bring him glory, unified as one. What do you think of the church? See, the real problem with these people that have these types of excuses is this. They have not yet come to see the church in direct relationship to Jesus Christ. That's the problem. It's only when a person biblically understands, biblically sees the church as the eternal bride of the Savior, which is the object of his affection, the sole recipient of his saving grace, only then will they see the glorious, beautiful, honorable Worthy of commitment, church. Worthy of commitment. Worthy of sacrifice. Worthy of death. This is to love her, his church, just as he has loved you. The church. The church is the personal possession of Jesus Christ. And we're called to love her just as he does. So the magnificence of the church is that she belongs to Jesus. So hopefully if you had any ill regard in your mind when I opened up with the question, what do you think about the church? I hope that your thought patterns have changed with regard to the church this morning because of what she means to him. You know, Pacific Hope, friends, is about to move into a new season of church family life. We're going to have a new building a new neighborhood, a new group of people that the Lord will bring through the doors. The building, that's not the church. It's only a church when we're all in it. Amen? When we're not in it, it's a building that people call a church. But you're the church. You're the bride. That's where we gather. Now, are you ready for any changes that the Lord may have? That's the question. Do we understand what this means for us corporately? Do you understand what it means for you individually? And it could mean many things. Because when God moves to make changes in the lives of people that he'll bring through those doors, we must be ready for the change as well. Your expectations must be conformed to his purpose, to his desire, and to his providential will, you see. But we always join together, just the eight of us, for a cup of coffee in the back nook. And now all these other people are pressing in. Are you ready to change? for what God might have for his church, his bride. You know, in other words, if we have certain expectations in our minds for the way we think things ought to be, they ought to continue just as they are. This is what we know. This is what we're familiar with. This is what makes us feel good. Then we closed ourselves off from what the will of God is for his bride, his church. May our expectations with regard to ourselves not be too high, amen. But if we focus on being servants of one another, we will easily be conformed to what he wants us to be as a corporate 
body of believers for his glory with whatever he wants to do. So if by God's grace, brothers and sisters, that that he grows us in influence, he may use this church as a great influence. If he grows us in number, we're all going to have to sacrifice. Amen? That's the way it is. So we must rethink and know well what biblical love is for one another. We're not going to put a blockade at the doors limiting our fellowship. We only put a blockade towards wolves and snakes and we'll just kick them out of there as quick as can be unless they don't repent. Amen? We'll take care of that. But again, if he, if he, if he desires us to grow and influence and love, it is our duty to be good stewards. Not getting frazzled. But I wanted that ministry role. I wanted that office. I wanted that corner. What was God's will? And may we remember this, brothers and sisters, very important, with regard to the church, with regard to the ones that you are to love. Always remember this, that on this side of eternity, the church, she's still under construction. You're under construction. I'm under construction. You ever been on a construction site? You've been at the building the last year? It's a construction site. Construction sites aren't tidy, neat little places, amen? If you look around a construction site, you see piles of debris. If you go to that construction site, you'll see piles of rocks over here. You'll see piles of of cut-up stone over here, cinder blocks over here, dirt here, uh, um, what you put in gardens, fertilizer laying over here. (laughs) It's a construction site because it's incomplete. So don't expect here from one another what can only be expected in heaven. Amen? Come on, somebody. We're an unfinished people. Okay, don't miss this. We're an unfinished people. You're an unfinished people being led by an unfinished people. Amen? If we can keep that in mind and understand what love for the bride of Christ is, nothing will stop us from doing His will. So the church is nothing less than a purely adorned bride who is to be loved, who is to be cherished, embraced, nourished, and sacrificed for. How do you view church? How do you view one another? See, to have an issue with the church is to have an issue with the friends of Christ. And if you have an issue with the friends of Christ, your ultimate issue is with Jesus Christ. We're instructed clearly how to resolve our indifferences, amen? And if we don't do that, we only hinder ourselves. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says this. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. How do you think about the church? How do you feel about the church? Do you love her? This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
In other words, you prove to be my friends. I close with the opening statement. No group, no movement, no institution of any kind in the world can even approach to the glory, the splendor, the honor, the beauty, the magnificence, the wonder, the dignity, the excellence, the resplendency of the church of God. Nothing. The church is his heart. It's the love of his heart. So may we love one another, amen? The bride. So I pray that we'll keep that in mind as we move. For whatever God may have for us, for whatever he, have, he may have for you, whatever he have, may have for me, together may we bring him glory as we love the church, one another. Amen? Let's pray. Please stand. I'll pray. Our glorious Father, we praise you and we thank you for your grace day by day, moment by moment, the grace that has saved us, the grace that sustains us, the grace that will glorify us one day. I thank you, Lord, for the time that we've had in this building. Thank you for providing it for us. Thank you, Lord, for the two buildings we had down the street. Thank you, Lord, for, the, for Stan who rented this place and wasn't able to any longer afford it, coming to us according to your providential hand of grace and offering this space just the other side of the wall where our children gather. We thank you for that. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for enabling us to be friends, your friends, that you call us friends. May we serve you as Lord. We pray that you'll give us wisdom as we move, Lord, to Afton Road. We pray that you would grant us favor this week with the city to get a final approval on gathering next Sunday. I pray that whomever you bring through those doors, the dead in Christ, I pray, would be made alive. I pray that we would see transformation of lives one after another and that whoever walks through those doors will see the love that we have for one another. And as you enfold them into the body of Christ here at Pacific Hope, may we grow to love them and may they grow to understand the depth of that love. May we proclaim divine truth with power from on high through every classroom, to the youth, to one another, and from this pulpit. Grant us the grace we ask, Lord. Empower us for service to do your will for your glory forever and ever, not by might nor by strength, but by your spirit. Sayeth the Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Together we all say, Amen.